In 2016, a man named Burger King Doe, who also went by the name Benjamin Kyle, finally learned his real name. And it was better than either of those, certainly better than Burger King Doe. But to appreciate how significant this is, you have to learn his backstory. And, and the backstory is that in 2004, in late August, on an early <clears throat> Wednesday morning, the staff of the Richmond Hill Burger King had gone back behind their restaurant and they were uh, getting some things together and they saw right there by the dumpster a naked man, unconscious, horribly, horribly sunburned, just covered in bites from red ants, and he had three depressions in his skull, apparently from blunt force trauma. And it seems that that certainly was the case because when they called 911 and, and everyone rushed to him and they brought him to the hospital and were able to revive him, he did not remember who he was, he couldn't remember his name, and he couldn't certainly remember how he had come to be unconscious and beaten in the back of a Burger King. Now, it seems from the movies I've seen that these things start piecing themselves together quite quickly, but that did not happen in this case. For 11 years, he didn't know his name. He didn't know where he came from. He didn't know anything about himself. He even hired hypnotists and all these things, and life was very hard for him because without a name and without a social security number, he could not apply for government assistance. He could barely even get a job. He had to live off the charity of others. Luckily, many people heard his story and tried to help him. Law enforcement took his fingerprints. They checked it against everything. No match. They took his face and tried to use facial recognition, and through that, maybe they could find uh, some draft notification or something, nothing. They could not help this man. And so he just struggled on for years. And he decided that his name had been Benjamin. That was just kind of stuck in his head. Benjamin with two A's. And he took the name for himself, Benjamin Kyle, which is BK. And that's what he went by, uh, which I guess was an homage to where they found him behind the Burger King. It's not a great name. And it didn't feel like a real great identity for him. He was, if anything, uneasy. But then... Ten years later, somebody contacted him, having heard his story, and said, I'm a uh, geneticist, and I work with helping adopted children find their parents. We can take your DNA, and we can do our magic, and we can probably find at least the general family of origin for you, if not the exact family. He said, let's do it. And in working through this, they used all sorts of deductive reasoning and they actually found not only the general area he came from, but then his family and his name. And his name wasn't Burger King. It was a much better name, William Burgess Powell. He, he finally had a sense of who he was. And he said in an interview, it changed everything. He'd been horribly depressed. He'd been horribly shiftless. And as he started to identify with his family, his community again, he said, looking at all these names, all these people, kind of gives me a sense of belonging. I have a name. I have a history. I'm not just some stranger that materialized out of thin air. And I think in that story, we, we see something that Paul knocks on here in Ephesians chapter 2. Something very important that we often miss in the church that, yes, God gives us a new name, and yes, God makes us a new creation, but this isn't something that happens in a vacuum. God saves us into a body, into his 
church. We've been looking in Ephesians 2 so far at the idea of individual salvation. That's very important, especially to us as Baptists. We have the idea of soul liberty. You will stand before God and he will say, you are either, you know me, you're my good and faithful servant, welcome, or I never knew you. But the New Testament knows nothing of salvation that is individualistic. That is foreign to our scriptures. This private religion or spirituality where someone might say, well, you know, I believe, yeah, yeah, but I don't talk about it. I don't bother other people about it. I don't go to church and meet with other people about this kind of thing. Okay, fine. It's private. It's personal. But what you're describing is an entirely different religion from what we find laid out in the New Testament. In fact, we find in this passage and the one we're going to look at next week and the one after and the week after it, uh, that Paul won't permit even one wall to be there in the church, creating two bodies out of what ought to be one body, let alone billions walling every individual Christian in as their own little island serving as their own private pope. Now, we've got to jump into this and just jump in with both feet because, like I've been saying, Paul is in true Pauline form in Ephesians And he is continually, you know, these long, long sentences, and we're getting bits and pieces of them. To do a whole sentence would be too much sometimes, and this is one of those cases. In fact, writing in 1905, Joseph Parker says, Paul is now in the midst of one of his characteristically tumultuous sentences. He will come out of it all right. We must give him time. (laughs) He's going to be okay. And guys, we're going in, and we're going to be all right, too. In fact, I think we'll find that Paul's words can benefit us much. And it starts with something easy, right? Therefore. Do I even have to prompt you? All right. What's the... You know what we should... Like some churches where they say, amen, and they shout amen. We should be the Baptist church that exuberantly shouts, what's the therefore, therefore... Pastor, come on, tell us, what's the therefore, therefore? You can't start a verse that's got therefore at the beginning and act like that word's not there. It points us back, and you've got to demand to know, and you've got to search out for yourself. What is this connection? What is this causality? Explain it, and, and I, I'm going to work it out. And here we see that the therefore tells us what this passage is about to lay out for us is an essential element of our salvation. Not some obscure corollary to it. Not some optional add-on to it. This is part and parcel of being saved by Jesus. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Let's just stop there. There's a ton there already. Now, Paul uses the G word here. Finally. He's going to jump in. Finally, he's going to use the word Gentile. He's going to kind of pop the top on what is the ultimate topic of the book of Ephesians, that out of two, God has made one people. And so he's talking to a church, writing to a church that is primarily, overwhelmingly Gentile. And so he feels comfortable saying, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's talking about a a long, long uh, growing chasm between two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, and how those who are Jews call themselves the circumcision, and they point at the Gentiles and call them the uncircumcision. 
In my life, hardly anyone ever talks about circumcision or uncircumcision for that matter, but it was very important in that day for those who had been brought into the people of God via this Old Testament rite of initiation. Paul's hopeless description of his situation before he came to Christ that we saw at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world. You followed the devil, the prince of the air. And then he says, among whom we all once walked. Hey, I'm with you. We were all dead in our trespasses. We, we all needed Jesus desperately. But believe it or not, he could have been worse off than he was. Because in verses 11 and 12, we have a description of some even more significant shortcomings of an even bleaker situation. And this bleak situation is what the, the Gentiles found themselves in. Paul, at least, although it couldn't save him by works of the law, had been part of the covenant community. He'd been a Jew. And you say, hold on a minute, there aren't different levels of being lost or saved. Either you're saved or you're not, right? You can't be partly saved. And that's true. But if you have two people that are lost, one of them might be out in the middle of the Mojave Desert with nothing but hundreds of miles of sand around him. And one of them might be just half a mile off the road or a hundred yards off the road. Or maybe he's even found the road. He just doesn't know which way to go on it. And we find here that the Gentiles were further off the road and further from salvation than the Jews. And so as he writes to them, he gives them this little reminder. I want you to think back. I want you to remember what your situation was. You who are called the uncircumcision. This is a, a derogatory term. The uncircumcision are those who are uh, foul and vulgar and profane and unclean. We think back to 1 Samuel 17 when David had heard Goliath trashing the God of Israel and the people of Israel. And he went to King Saul and he said, listen, I can kill this guy. Believe me, I know I'm little. But he says to him, your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. This uncircumcised guy thinks he's going to drag the name of our God. I will take him out of the equation. This is just confirming perhaps Goliath is a great example of the view from the circumcision of what those of the uncircumcision were like. Barbarians and Greeks and those who were just given over to their own sinfulness and their basest instincts. And of course, circumcision was instituted by God as a visible sign amongst his people. It's something that God says should be done, but Paul reminds us here that it is something done in the body and with hands. You see, Paul understands there's a difference between someone who's just received this outward right and yet they have not been circumcised of heart and someone who truly has lived into that covenant community. He knows from personal experience that there was a tendency among especially the Pharisaical Jews, of which Paul was one, to emphasize the outer external right almost exclusively to the exclusion of the internal. That's what the prophets were continually railing against. Circumcise your hearts. This, this the apostle reminds us, is focusing on something done with hands in the body rather than something that's done spiritually. And he'll tell us in Romans 2, 29, that a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter and not by hands 
and not of the body. His praise is not from man, but from God. And yet, all of that aside, here he tells us, Gentiles, and I'm going to say us Gentiles, because I'm a Gentile, and I don't know of any of you having come from a Jewish background. There's probably someone listening that did, but there was certainly someone in this church hearing this letter who also was a Jewish background. They were so overwhelmingly Gentile, though, that, that he could say to them, you Gentiles. So we Gentiles still, despite the fact that relying on some outward external right alone could not save you, we Gentiles actually were more of a disadvantaged people than even Saul or Caiaphas or Simon the Pharisee, for that matter. In fact, if we kept reading in Romans, right after he says a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart, he says, what then? Is there any advantage in being a Jew? Is there any advantage in circumcision? Yes, much in every way. First off, we, meaning they, the Jews, have been entrusted with the very words of God. If you are apart from God and you need salvation, and yet God says, here, here's the words that I wrote about how I am in the process of saving you and through you all of mankind, that is a great advantage. In chapter 9, he's going to go on with this list, this bullet point list of all sorts of advantages to being part of the circumcision. He says, theirs is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. That is quite a list. And it sounds like quite a great deal to have been part of that covenant community. Here, he has a similar list. Only it's about all the disadvantages of being a Gentile apart from Christ. And if you are taking notes, this would certainly be the uh, point where you'd want to start if you haven't. There are five individual disadvantages that he wants to hammer home. And he hits them with us really quick in quick succession. Number one, did you Gentiles were separated from Christ. Jesus came from the Jews, and he came first for the Jews. Remember Romans 1.16? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the salvation of God for all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And Jesus says, remember to the Syrophoenician woman, who, who says, heal my daughter. He says, I came for the lost children of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. He does heal her, but he emphasizes, I came first for the Jews. Some 24 years ago, or whenever I began Bible college, one of my first Bible classes was a New Testament history and theology class. And we had a book for it by Christopher Wright. It was called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. And I remember being overwhelmed with all the reading I had to do and yet just devouring that book and reading parts of it several times over. On the back, the, the copy the, the headline said, we cannot know Jesus without knowing his story. We cannot know Jesus without knowing his story. And that is something to be remembered. I know I've, I've heard a little grumbling here and there if I preach too long from the Old Testament. Someone says, are we going to get to some New Testament stuff soon? What, you don't want to know Jesus by knowing his story? I know it can get a little bit thick sometimes, but so can Paul's writings in the book of Ephesians when every sentence is like 25 miles long. It's worth it to know Christ. 
Because out of that story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and his sons, the 12 patriarchs, and their sons, and Moses, and the priesthood, out of that story arises the story of Jesus himself. Out of the story of the Old Testament. And so you were separated from Christ. In fact, the word here in, in Greek, it's chorus Christu, which literally, woodenly translated, just means without a Messiah. You guys were without a Messiah. You, you were separated from the coming Christ. Secondly, excluded from Israel. Now, I need you to get out of your head any ideas of modern-day nation-state, the secular nation called Israel. That is not in view here at all. What we have here is the notion that God dwelt for much of salvific history, the whole Old Testament, Old Covenant period, in Israel's midst. Of course, God is in one sense omnipresent. He's everywhere. But He chose to make the glory of His presence to manifest His divine brilliance in a particular way, in a particular place, which was in the Holy of Holies, in the heart of the temple, which was in the heart of Israel. So that if you wanted to be part of God's people and you wanted to know God, you had to be part of Israel. You remember in the book of Ruth, when the, the uh, family of Eliakim have gone over to uh, the Moabites and there some of their sons took wives, then their sons died, and they're on the way back and Ruth is now a widow and, and uh, Naomi is a widow and she says, you know what, just go home. And Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. I'm going back to Israel. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And the fact is that in order for Naomi's God to be Ruth's God, Naomi's people had to become Ruth's people. There was not a complete closing of, of grace to all the Gentiles, but in order to come into God's presence, they had to come like all of Israel, and they had to do it by becoming first part of Israel. And so all those, the rest of the Moabites and the Amalekites and the, everybody, they were excluded from Israel. Thirdly, you were strangers to the covenant of promise. Or actually, it says to the covenants, plural, of the promise, singular. There was this one promise that was at the heart of all of these covenants that make up the Old Testament for us. In fact, the whole Bible is a book of covenants. I think primarily of God speaking to Abram. We read in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a way in which that one great promise from Genesis 3.15 that the serpent's head would be crushed is now being manifest and furthered in these covenants with Israel. For those who were living under these old covenants, every aspect of life was saturated with hope. Every aspect of life was designed to remind them of God's faithfulness to them in the past and point them to the coming Messiah in the future. All, all the stuff we read about in Leviticus, and we're like, what does any of this have to do with anything? It's there to point them to God's faithfulness in the past and remind them there's a Messiah coming, and he's coming from us and first for us. Gentiles had no such experience. Just like our world today, life for Gentiles was continually saturated with self-seeking, instant 
self-gratification of the flesh designed to point them away from the fact that they were separated from God by their sins. That they stood guilty before a perfect and holy God, which is something that people everywhere instinctively know. We were strangers from the promise and the covenant. That's the word xenos, by the way, in the Greek. It's where we get xenophobia. People who are afraid of those who are different or far off, who are, who are strangers, aliens. Well, we were the ones who were far off, strangers and aliens. Perhaps the best word here would be estranged. We were estranged from the covenant and the promise because the promise originally was for all of mankind, and yet we had become estranged from it. I mean, even in that passage from Genesis 12, God speaking to Abram, you heard a blessing for Gentiles. Through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And yet we didn't know about it. And so we were estranged from it. We were indeed strangers to it. And as a result, number four, we were hopeless. Remember, this whole, this whole uh, letter began with him saying, I thank God when I pray every time. I, I thank him for your love and I thank him for your faith. And then I pray that you will know hope. They were struggling with hope. They had love. They had faith. They were struggling with hope. And perhaps part of that had to do with their Gentile background. Now, as a Jew, Paul knew that he was dead in his sins. But at least, even when he was persecuting the church in his past, he had hope built into his keeping of the law, his celebrating of the feast and the festivals. It was always there pointing him in the right direction. And it, it all clicked together when Jesus knocked him down on that road to Damascus. There was hope to be offered at least. In our world today, there is no hope offered. None whatsoever. In fact, it's become almost a symbol of maturity or sophistication to embrace the hopelessness and meaninglessness of it all and be okay with it. For those who stay on the surface of things and don't think or dig too deep, they may not feel the, the cold grip of their lack of hope, at least for a while, it seems that staring at a little three inch by six inch screen, continually kind of scrolling through nonsense and meaningless stuff, it will distract human beings for a time from our plight. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones observed, outside of Christ, the deeper a person thinks, the more hopeless they will become. They may have held on, you know, the, the Greek philosophers and, and all of those who are wise with the wisdom of the world, they may have held on to some sense of hope the way we use the word, like a, an optimistic yearning of some kind, but they did not have hope the way the Bible speaks of it, which is grounded confidence in a future reality. There was nothing like that for them. And finally, number five, not only were they without hope, they were without God in the world. Oh, that sounds awful. Being in the world without God. What a terrible situation these Gentiles were in. And by that I mean what a terrible situation we Gentiles were in. That word without God, it's atheoi. It's where we get our word atheist. And, and ironically, although they had tons of gods, they were godless. They had no capital G God. They had no one who could come and say, then what's going to happen? Zeus might come down and maybe he'll kill some people or, or maybe he'll bed a woman or a god or a half god, half woman. It doesn't help us, right? They didn't have a true God, holy and just, filled with mercy and loving kindness. You know, when, when the pagans of this world declare, I don't need some invisible man in the sky in order to be happy and content or moral and ethical, 
it rings so hollow to me, like someone chasing after the wind. Because cobbling together a morality of our own design, you're always one step behind it. And trying to cobble together something lasting in this world where all flesh is grass and passes away, it's a hopeless act. To be without God in the world is a hopeless thing. And yes, I said pagans, and we don't use that word that much anymore. Over the last hundred years, the word pagan, in the church even, has been replaced with the word secular, because it sounds a little nicer, and because, strictly speaking, you can't be a pagan if you hold to a monotheistic faith, and we have this Judeo-Christian foundation in America, right? So someone could not be religious, but they're not pagan, they're just secular. Well, we are post-Christian now. We are post-Judeo-Christian. If we ever had that foundation to begin with, it's long gone. And I think it would serve us well to bring back that word pagan. Because it will remind us that just like dealing with the Greeks and the Gentiles and the, the idolaters all around them in Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, all these books of the Bible, it was something that they were equipped to do. We are equipped to do this today. The world is a hopeless place full of paganism and yet Jesus has given us the tools to bring light into that darkness. Oh man, again, I find myself a good way, more than halfway, don't worry, through the sermon. And it's super depressing. And you're like, it's 2020. Can we, st-? all right. Once again, we have this beautiful word, but it keeps coming up. We get, we get this horrible, bleak situation that's drawn, this painting that's just like, here, let me, let me tell you in detail how hopeless everything is for you if you're left to yourself. And then we get, but God. But God, what wonderful, what a wonderful word. What a wonderful phrase. We saw that in Ephesians uh, 2 at the very beginning of the chapter here. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There are so many instances of but God throughout the Bible. Thousands of them. Just a few. Genesis 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock with him and sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, Joseph says, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done to save many lives. The Psalms are full of this. Psalm 49, those with foolish confidence like sheep are destined to die, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jonah, chapter 2, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. Sounds hopeless. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Acts 3, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And 2 Timothy 2, the gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. But God, that is always coming. When it feels like things are hopeless, know that there is always a but God in the mix. And do not lose hope. If you leave here with only one thing this morning, let it be that and how cute Leah was. 
But for those of us who are, who are tempted to lose hope in times like this, with all that's going on in the world, recognize that God is yet at work. The but God is coming whenever it feels like it is at the darkest. The dawn is on its way. Here we have but now. But now in Christ Jesus. That's verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In fact, those two phrases, but now and in Christ... They keep on coming up. Perhaps this is the gospel in a nutshell. It's like a walnut where there's two halves to the shell. One half is but now. The other is in Christ. You were dead in your sins, but now in Christ you have life. You were separated from... In fact, we go through all these things. All five of these bleak descriptors. And we can flip them backwards because but now in Christ everything's different. We are not separated from Christ. We're united with Christ. We're grafted into Israel. We're partakers of the covenant and the promises. We are full of hope. And we are with God in the world. Not without God in the world. Or better yet, God with us in the world. Emmanuel. And Paul's going to continue sussing out our new position in Christ for the rest of this chapter, that we're members of God's household. And then even into chapter 3, he'll remind us that we are now heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And he ends with just my favorite, my favorite little snippet from this chapter. I think it's even more hope-filled than Ephesians 2, 8-10. through 10. He says, you who were once far off. You were once far off. A few years ago, I found myself sitting in the Golan Heights because I was on this wonderful trip with some wonderful people and having a wonderful time. And they call the Golan Heights heights because they're super high. It's not like Grand Rapids when you're like, where's the rapids? No, it's really high. And we were at this little coffee shop called Coffee Anon, which is clever because it's a play on Kofi Anon, Secretary General of the UN uh, in the past. And also means coffee cloud in Hebrew. And I'm enjoying the pun. I'm sipping my, you know, half-calf macchiato, I'm double-calf macchiato, whatever I had. And we look over and we see beneath us Syria. And this is 2017 when the civil war in Syria was on everyone's mind and it's, it's raging horribly then. It's probably not much better now, but people aren't talking about it. But we could look down and we saw in this beautiful green country, we saw plumes of smoke coming up because people were fighting and killing each other and fighting for their lives, and, and it was so surreal. And my first thought, because I'm a tough guy, was, am I safe? And we were told, yeah, don't worry. That's very, very far away. You're so high. I mean, you can almost see to Damascus from here. You're so high up. You can see for miles and miles and miles and miles. You're safe. And I thought, I'm so glad. Thank you, God, that they are far off. That they're far off from here. That's kind of how the circumcision tended to think of the uncircumcision. They're far off. Thankfully, they are far away. And yet it's also how people have continually thought of God, ironically. Remember, at Mount Sinai, there was smoke and fire and everything at the top of the mountain when the covenant was being established and Moses was being given the tablets upon which was written the, the Ten Commandments, and, and everyone drew back, and they said, let's be far off. We don't want to get anywhere near this God. And if Israel themselves are backing away, how much further away were we Gentiles? Our ancestors worshiping stumps and rivers or whatever they were doing, painting themselves blue. 
Listen, we were far off. We, it's, it's, hard to over, it's hard to overemphasize that. And he says, you who were far off, now brought near. See that contrast again? Far off, brought near, obviously. But he's contrasting that time, at that time, and now. He's contrasting separate from Christ with now in Christ, brought near to him. This is what God's plan had been all along. In Isaiah 57, the prophet said, uh, God said through the prophet, because of his iniquity, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. God dwelt in the temple of Israel in their midst, and they had access to him in old days. But now, in Christ Jesus, all who receive him have access to him, and he dwells in us, having drawn us near to himself. I think of Acts 2.39. This is nothing, nothing new that Paul is discovering. Peter's preaching the very same thing on the first day that the church even exists in the church age, Pentecost. He says to the people, for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone whom he calls to himself, far and near, the promise is for you and for your children. We're brought near to God by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're brought near and into his people by the extending of Israel to include those of every tribe, tongue, and nation, the Israel of God, by faith in Christ. Jesus told us He would do this in John chapter 10. And this is a verse we'll probably look at a few more times in coming weeks. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to My voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. There is room in God's people for one flock because there is only one shepherd. Something new is happening now. In fact, remember, notice he says you were Gentiles by birth. That's what you were. Now what are they now? They haven't become Jews. Remember in the Jerusalem council it was decided, even James said, yeah, they don't have to become Jews in order to follow Jesus. But they're not still Gentiles apparently. He says you were Gentiles. Gentile, the word in both the Hebrew and the Greek, it just means nations. It's the word ethnoi, eth like where we get ethnic. So you were part of a nation that was outside of Israel, but now what's going on? That's not who you are anymore. It's not your identity. They become a holy nation, as Peter tells us. A holy nation, or, or in the epistle to Diognetus, which is one of the earliest Christian letters that we have from after the Bible was finished, he says to Diognetus that the church is a new race. Now all together in Christ, one. Jews and Gentiles, that was the old division. Now that has been superseded. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles and the church of God. We are part of the church of God. Philippians 3.3, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And the very last little phrase in this passage, how did all this happen? This amazing reversal. 
by the blood of Christ. What great news that Jesus was willing to shed his blood for you and for me because we were far off. And instead of saying, ah, stay there if that's where you want to be, he was willing to die and suffer and then to rise again to secure our salvation and draw us near. Paul is going to unfold for us as this unfolds that the shedding of Christ's blood did two important things. First of all, it satisfied God's justice and God's wrath against sin. But secondly, as a result, it removed the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles by abolishing the law. And if we have been brought near, we now have a spiritual union with Christ and intimacy with God. I was reading a little while ago about a Jesuit priest uh, who had a a ministry uh, in East Los Angeles. Uh, It was called Homeboy Industries. He named it himself. And uh, even though it's got a corny name, this guy, this, this, this old priest, he had been dealing with gang members coming out of gangs and being just horribly depressed by the continual reminder every time they look in the mirror of their gang tattoos, their old affiliations, how it said, this is who I am and identified them with the violence and the sin of their past, and they wanted a new start. And so this guy, Father Greg Boyle, he got together with some businessmen to fund it, and with a bunch of physicians who who knew how to use the laser removal stuff, and he started offering to gang members who wanted to remove and wipe away this this shameful past that they wanted nothing to do with anymore. They could have it for free. And there's, at this point, more than a thousand people on the waiting list, even though it's a horrifically painful procedure. What they wanted was to be removed from their past. And I think this is a wonderful picture of what Jesus does for us. He bore the pain of that painful procedure. But our sins and our old affiliations and our, our just like, you, you, we, we would say all oh, those gang members, they kill each other just because they're in a different gang? What's the point of that? Yeah, right. All of us had the old Adam in us that says, you're different from me, Xenos. Okay, we are going to hate you and we're going to turn against you and we're going to divide ourselves into different corners and and we are going to work against one another and now in Christ we are one. One body. One flock with one shepherd. And he is able to remove that which seemed irremovable. And he doesn't remove these things so that we will forget. In fact, in verse 12 and verse 11, he tells us, he commands us, remember. That's the command here. That's the imperative. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles, etc., remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Remember the bad old days, which is something he's been urging us to do for quite some time here. At some point... We don't know how long, but I hope and trust that it will be sooner rather than later. We will no longer have to be far off from one another all the time. Oh, six feet away, six feet away. We'll be able to draw near to one another once again. And I'll tell you what, when that happens, it will be a long time before I forget how precious it is to be able to shake someone's hand and give someone a hug and, and sit in close quarters with someone. It's good to remember where we are coming from and how we were saved from it. Remember where you were. Remember that God drew you near to him and remember how he did it. Mark Allen Powell wrote in a a book called The Forgotten Famine about uh, an experiment that he'd had. This is about how different people read the Bible in different ways. 
in which he had talked to 12 seminary students. He was teaching a class, and he had all of them read the story of the prodigal son. You know the story, but I'll quick sum it up for you anyway. The prodigal son says to his father, hey, I don't want to be your son working out in the field anymore. I want to basically act like you're dead and have my inheritance now. The father gives him his inheritance. He goes off to a foreign land. He's living it up. He's Joe Hollywood. Everyone loves him. He's giving everybody wine and hummus and everything. And then he runs out of money. And at about the same time, there is a horrible famine in the land. And he finds himself eating pig pods. Uh, this is the food that the pigs eat while he's working as a pig farmer or a pig farm hand. And he says to himself, this is stupid. Servants and slaves in my father's house live better than this. So he gets up, he goes back home, the father accepts him. It's, it, I, can't even, I can't tell you too much about it because I'll start crying. So that's the story. So he had six of them describe it to the other six, and then the other six, about, and, and he listened in, and they all wrote it down. And he found that not one of them, in this rather short story with rather few elements, not one of them mentioned the famine that prompted him to go back. And so he, he did a wider study, a hundred people. And he had a hundred people read this story and sum it up. Just quickly, all right, tell me what the story is, all the basic elements of it. Only uh, eight of them mentioned the famine. Out of 100, 92 of them did not. Then he went to Russia, St. Petersburg, Russia specifically, gathered together 50 participants to read and retell the prodigal son story. This time, 42 out of 50 of them mentioned the famine. In fact, it was, in their mind, the climax, the turning point of the story. Perhaps the reason why is that 70 years earlier, 670,000 people died of starvation after a Nazi siege of this capital city began a three-year famine, and now it is ingrained in their mind. It is kind of a trigger for them to think of famine. It's a horrible thing. Well, to remember where they'd been made them understand that story all the more. The famine's an important part. Because when you go off and you're away from God and you say, I'm going to draw far off and I'm going to live how I want to live. And I'm going to find my own way. And I'm going to make my own rules and I'm going to be my own God. Before long, the, the kind of buzz runs off. The, the, the warm feeling of, and the excitement, it kind of wears thin. And the spiritual famine sets in. And that is what Paul is pointing back to. Remember he says, and he says it twice, remember. And when we remember, we have wonderful byproducts of that memory. First of all, we have humility. We're reminded that this is nothing we've done. The branch can't put itself into the vine. Either it grows out of the vine, which is the Jews, or it's grafted into the vine, which is we Gentiles. Either way, we must be humble because we were far off. And when you take the, the branch away from the vine, it has no hope of life. John Newton, who had been a slave trader and just a despicable human being in his pre-Christian life, was once asked if he despaired of the salvation of a particular person. And he answered, I never did despair since he saved me. We should all have that same humility. God can save me. He can save anyone. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing that can make me despair in this world. Nothing the enemy can throw at me. Secondly, it will lead us to great adoration of our God, continual adoration. You read about the four living creatures always saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And you say, are you not going to take a break? You're not going to get to the second verse? It's like a Chris Tomlin song, run amok or something. I right? just over and over. Listen, 
we must know what our God has done for us to be able to approach Him properly. And if we know what our God has done for us, we cannot stop adoring Him and praising Him. And we cannot stop living in gratitude and giving Him thanks. And it will lead us to an evangelical zeal, I think. We won't be content to sit and sip our macchiatos looking off at those who are far off and saying, well, there they are. I guess I'm glad they're not here. No, we will be compelled to reach out to draw them near, remembering that we too were far off from Him, separated from Christ, strangers to the covenant, and all the rest. That has to be what motivates us as Christians. I have more than once recently realized I was hip deep in some kind of debate with someone who was far off from the promise, Christless, godless, and yet my approach to the interaction was to put them off more, push them back more by winning. All I cared about was being right rather than them being drawn close, rather than tenderly trying to draw them in and show them that God loves them. That has to be our evangelical zeal. We have to remember both aspects of this. That before you were far off and now you've been drawn near. You can't, you can't just gloss over and tell people, no, you're not, you're not far off. If someone who feels helpless, hopeless, excluded, cosmically alone shares this with a friend because that friend seems to know the Bible or be involved at church or have a connection with God only to be told, hey, don't worry, that's just your negative thinking. That's poor self-image, blah, blah, blah. That's not going to help them. The Scriptures say, do worry. Because that's who you are, cut off from God and His people. But God loves you and sent His only Son to die on a cross so He could wash you and draw you near. The moralistic, therapeutic deism of our age is not compatible with biblical Christianity. And as long as even within the church, our church cultures and our devotional books and our positive pop music on the allegedly Christian radio stations tries to blend these two things together, the church is going to slide further and further into absolute irrelevance. We have to rediscover these two great truths. That we were far off, separated, strangers, hopeless, godless, helpless, but God drew us near by the blood of Christ. Remembering that changes everything. It changes how we approach Him. It changes how we approach one another. And it certainly doesn't leave any room for any walls within the body of Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank You for these few verses. We thank You for this uh, pulling no punches description of where we stood. How we were not only separated individually from God, but separated from Your people and all alone And Lord, we pray that when we see people who lash out at the world because they are all alone, hopeless, helpless, Christless, and godless, we would not turn our back, not say, well, at least they're far off, but Lord, we would want to draw them near. We would remember where we've come from. We would remember that Jesus gave us a mission, and that mission is to go out and make disciples of all nations, remembering remembering where we came from and how you, by the moving of your mighty arm, took us, washed us, made us a new creation, saved us, and drew us close to you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.